Well, hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Nefesh Podcast. This is episode 60, and I am so glad that you are with us for this episode. And this week, in this this episode, I want to talk about trauma a little bit and survival and how it impacts our soul. Now, obviously, I'm not a therapist. Um, I have I have had the privilege of of sitting under and benefiting from some amazing trauma therapists uh, in my own attempt to work through my own trauma. Um, and really incredible trauma therapists have helped me to understand what happens to our body, what happens to our mind, what happens to our emotions when we go through trauma and um, our struggle to survive. And so um, I'm going to utilize some of the resources that they have given me, uh, utilize a really great book called The Body Keeps the Score uh, by Dr. Bessel van van der Kolk. Um, and and talk about really how that relates to our own spiritual formation, particularly in the light of COVID, and even look at some Old Testament passages and experiences that I think we can resonate with today. Um, and I think that's one of the things that is so important and really is part of my mission in life for myself and, and helping others see the relevance of life today and scripture and how our spiritual formation takes place today in the midst of a 21st century and the craziness and how we can draw closer to God, how we can not only protect our soul, but grow in our spiritual growth, our spiritual relationship, our, our holistic spiritual formation, and how we can not only grow in our relationship with God, but how we can help others. And you know, one of the things that I've just been really understanding, I think probably over the last almost 20 years, um, in 2005, I w had the just amazing opportunity uh, and privilege to go back to school to get my graduate degree, my first graduate degree, a Master of Divinity, which is just a professional, professional ministry degree. That's all it, it means, a really big degree, 90 units master's degree and it was a you know scholarship a part of the Kern uh, Kern Foundation Kern family who were just trying to help pastors grow in their in their character development and their ministry and just you know phenomenal family that did this mm -hmm. all over the nation in various schools and it was a life-changing experience for me being able to go back and understand and learn and and sit under really extraordinary professors, Dr. Debbie Jin, Dr. John Hartley, um, Dr. Don Thorson, Dr. Gary Black, uh, Dr. Scott Daniels, Dr. Keith Matthews, Dr. Danny um, Falcioni, um, uh, and so many others that I'm, I can't think of at the moment, but, but really incredible professors there. And, as I began to understand spirituality, spiritual formation, and particularly I took a couple of pastoral counseling classes to help me understand how to be a better pastor, how to counsel, how to provide support and care for people. And I, I began to understand that the integration of the whole body was important in spiritual formation. You know, prior to that, through my own attempt at self-care, 
my look at, I, I began to dive into cognitive behavioral therapy, um, otherwise known as CBT and the psychology world. And I, you know, began to read a lot of books and just tried to understand myself early on when I was um, in my undergraduate and I was still trying to figure out what what God's purpose was for my life I spent a semester as a psychology major and I took a couple of psychology courses abnormal psychology and then developmental psychology and I was just so fascinated with how we work and and really what I you know looking back what I was trying to do I had a natural bent towards analysis and trying to understand the person and part of it was trying to understand me and my own brokenness and my own challenges with obsessive compulsive disorder and worry and and even depression and and then as I grew and I got you know into other uh, programs and the graduate program and I began to understand that the whole body is formed in spiritual formation that our whole body was designed to grow and you know, unfortunately, this has not always been taught throughout church history and theology. And unfortunately, sometimes we've emphasized the spirit or the soul as if it was separate from our body. And that's actually, if you look back through history, that's a Platonian uh, or Platonic, uh, meaning referring to Plato, a Greek philosophy that that is not what we see throughout scripture. And Paul is actually fighting against that in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15 and fighting against a Greek philosophy known as Gnosticism. But if you look at the whole Bible and in particularly the Hebrew Bible, the understanding of the soul is that it is integrated into all parts of the body and all of our body matters, our mind, our body, our emotions, our soul. And, and this is why, um, you know, people like Dallas Willard and others, they emphasize that scripture in, I believe it's Deuteronomy and then in the gospels where Jesus says that we are or he affirms that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. It is an affirmation that our whole body is part of spiritual formation. And the more, especially lately, that I've begun to understand that, it's clicked, you know, why fasting is a spiritual discipline. Because the body is part of our soul and our spirit, and as we, as we bring into submission to Christ, all parts of our body, our, our food intake, our sleep, our thoughts, our words, our actions, all of these spiritual disciplines that the church has practiced for the last couple thousand years make, begin to make sense. That fasting isn't, quote, a spiritual thing, it is a whole body thing. And that spiritual formation isn't just, quote, a spirit thing, it is a whole body thing. And so all of our body is involved in spiritual growth and we need to understand that and especially i think as it relates to things like trauma and trauma and i think you know we are indebted to again psychologists and therapists over the last probably few decades as they've grown to understand trauma and ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder we actually understand that in history um, going back to World War One, what was uh, what was just an awful war. I mean, from top to bottom, an awful war. World War Two was incredibly sad and destructive and evil, but World War One really strikes me as much more of a sad and tragic 
war because it really there was no there was no reason for it no really good reason for it it was just a you know a bunch of grown men trying to trying to excise their desire for control and 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 um it, it, there wasn't a legitimate reason for it and you know half of them were related and they're just kind of it's like a big family war but so many people were killed um and it was what what we began it was the first modern war and so modern warfare and guns and tanks and machinery and and airplanes dropping bombs that was the first time in history that you had such destructive warfare with one bomb you're able to destroy so much and you know from the skies above you're, you're not safe and so it it really caused so much trauma and we didn't really understand it at the time and so they would describe these world war one soldiers who were coming back from war they would describe them as having shell shock that they today we would say they exhibited the characteristics of being in trauma of having ptsd of maybe disassociation which is just a way of saying they kind of um disassociated from themselves they they kind of shut down or they uh, parts of themselves were cut off because in order to survive the trauma that they were seeing the trench warfare um, the mustard gas the barbed wire the um, just a really and again a war that was really hard to understand and so many people getting killed um, it was so they came back and and hospitals were trying to treat these men with and so they were labeled with shell shock well as we move into world war ii and then even into vietnam it, it turns into an understanding although we're still late to the game as far as really understanding and knowing how to help soldiers because we know that even soldiers coming back from vietnam did not get the care that they needed and so we we had a whole generation of men suffering through the vietnam war with more than likely PTSD issues and trauma and not really understanding how to process that. And so over the last few decades, it seems like um, that, I mean, so much has increased, even, even you know, when I was in my undergrad in that first semester uh, of, of being a psychology major, just some of the things that I learned then, even, what was that, 1997, 26 years, it was 26 years ago, seeing how much has changed in the area of psychology and in, even in the area, area of understanding trauma. It's, it's just so powerful what we are learning and understanding. And as I begin, uh, have really tried to understand and process through COVID, I, I think my history degree and, and experience as well as other things have really challenged me to look at more of a global perspective of cause and effect situations that understanding that we are though we are individuals we are also in systems family systems church systems in a state in a country in a in a province um, that we and we're part of a larger system and that all of these things are working together and influence and impact one another. And I think this is one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to things like history is because I want to understand and know why things happen the way they do. 
I want to know why we respond the way we do. And I want to know why various groups of people or societies or countries respond the way we do. And why, you know, why World War I happened and why World War II happened. And, and especially lately, what COVID was all about. Now, historic in, in terms of the history discipline, um, and it's, it's still true today, but it was definitely true way back when, when history was, was first being understood and accounts were being written down, you know, back to thousands of years ago. People understood that you really couldn't analyze history until later on, much later on, because you couldn't see the whole picture. And, uh, you know, for example, 9-11, we, we didn't know the whole picture even, not, certainly not the day it happened, not the days after, not months after. It's taken even a few decades to really understand all the cause and effect and the things that were going on and, and even to separate some of the, um, the theories from what was actually happening, what was actually true. And... Um, and that's true of events because there are so many factors that go into that. There are so many um, things that we don't know yet because we're too close to the event. And so in studying history, it does take a while to step back and really try to get a global perspective, a, a societal perspective, an understanding of the event then from a global perspective. Uh, global perspective. So even now, as we are still dealing with COVID and dealing with COVID effects and some laws and things that were in place during COVID are still either in place or just now tapering off, we, we won't have a good full perspective of COVID until years later. It will be uh, somebody else in the future who will who will, or other people rather, who will be really be able to unpack what has gone on, what has happened. And even though information is more available quicker these days, it's still going to take a while to understand all of the various factors and what happened, why it happened, what we could have done differently, what we should have done differently. And it will also take a while to understand the impact. We're too close to the situation to understand now the impact of what it will be. What it will be for five-year-olds who were five in 2020 when COVID hit and their educational process and how that was affected. To understand people's mental health and how it's going to fully impact their lives to understand the reality of long COVID and people who struggle with the lingering effects of long COVID. And again, we won't know all of that until maybe generations later when, when people pass on and we understand the effects of that. Um, it's still too soon to understand the effects of the vaccine and I, I, that becomes a really controversial topic, but it's still too early. The, we just don't know. There's too much we don't know and won't know until, until we, till time passes. But one of the things that I think is important to discuss and understand is the trauma that we have experienced collectively. And that's, that's something that's been on my mind lately, collective trauma. 
and what that looks like, the collective trauma of Africans being sold into slavery and then being enslaved for such a long period of time in America. And one of the things that I've been challenging my students on is why? Why were, why did the U.S. support slavery longer than any other industrialized or modern country? And trying to understand what that collective trauma looked like. And then the, eight, or the, the 90 years or 100 years of segregation that took place after slaves were free in America, the years of segregation and racism that kept a, a whole system down and suppressed, the collective trauma of Native Americans being systematically wiped out in the United States and, and really other parts of the Americas, the collective trauma of the Japanese internment during World War II when Japanese Americans were rounded up and put into prison camps, internment camps, for the duration of the war because they, the government was worried. And there is a lot of support and evidence for the fact that it really stemmed out of racist beliefs that the Japanese, they were worried that the Japanese would be loyal to their country and would be spies. And so they rounded up everybody, it didn't matter what your affiliation or if they had any evidence on you, you were rounded up, you lost your homes and your businesses, you had to rebuild afterwards. What does that type of collective trauma do, and particularly for those three groups who are considered minorities in the United States, Native Americans, African Americans, and Japanese Americans, who are still minorities in the United States, what has that done collectively to them, this collective trauma? There's a movie coming out soon, um, depending upon when you listen to this podcast, but I believe it's coming out in October of 2023 called uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage murder, uh, Osage murders. And it's a tr based on a true story. There's a book about it. I've read, I've read the book or most of the book, and it's heartbreaking the reality of what was done to these Native Americans uh, just to steal their money and, and their, their wealth. Um, and this was in the 1920s, um, the early 20th century, that stuff was still happening and is still happening to Native Americans and the collective trauma that they, they've experienced. Well, COVID has been a type of collective trauma to the world. Now, not all countries and people have been equally affected. The early part of the COVID, I remember Italy was severely affected. Uh, I mean, they couldn't, they were stacking bodies and, and coffins in churches and it was like getting overrun. Um, certain parts of the United States were more affected than others those who had the means to shut down or um, uh, work remotely and had the means to be able to survive in their house or had access to better terms of health care and other things, they weren't as affected, maybe. Some people were disproportionately affected more than others. Um, China and parts of China were hit really bad. And again, I don't... I, I feel like I don't, you know, the conspiracies and the, 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 all of that stuff, it's just not on my radar right now. And, and 
it's not to say that it's not legitimate, but it's it's just not on my radar. What what I am concerned about is the trauma and the impact of that trauma on our lives and and on our souls. And understanding that that it really was a global phenomenon. And I've I've said this before, but it just it continues to hit me, this idea that for at least two months, the whole world was shut down. I was obviously, like many people working from home, uh, had just recently moved about 400 miles away from family and friends into a new position at a school and, um, and so was and living on my own and, and was locked down. And I, like others, was probably you know, searching and on the internet and looking at what was going on around me, trying to keep up to date and track of things and watching the body count just rise and rise and rise. And, and you know, I, I remember going on the internet and just seeing um, all the, the statistics of, of the silence, of the air pollution going down, of the, the, uh, the collective silence that was taking place around the world, the, the being able to to go outside and listen, well, if you could go outside, listen to the sound of the birds and the trees and the, the natural sounds that you wouldn't normally hear because you've got airplanes and cars and other machinery or just people moving around. I, I knew it was real when, uh, when Disneyland shut down. I feel like the date March 15th is for whatever reason, that's sticking out in my mind. I don't know if that's the date that Disneyland shut down, but that's the date that's in my mind. Disneyland has never shut down except for, I believe they did on 9-11 after. They had opened and then they, they shut down. But I think they were back up the next day, maybe. But, I mean, Disneyland shut down. Disneyland didn't shut down during the Vietnam War, didn't shut down during any other, you know, crises. But it shut down. It's like you knew it was legit when the happiest place on earth shuts down. And all of us, again, some of us were more affected than others, and I, I recognize that. But whether or not you were directly impacted, most likely you, most likely you were indirectly impacted. You can't escape the reality behind, uh, you know, beyond your doors of the uncertainty, the political upheaval and discord and just fighting over various issues. And then the reality that in May of 2020, there was a civil and social unrest with Black Lives Matter and the murder of, of George Floyd. And then a year or just a few months later on January 6th, 2021, the insurrection at the Capitol of the United States. These are taking place while everything is being shut down, while, while COVID is changing everything and forcing people to adapt and, and not go outside and and the uncertainty of your own life, my fear at that time was, was really not about me. I, I figured I was young enough, healthy enough, that if I got it, I would be okay. But I was really concerned about having it and spreading it to others, especially um, members of my household who were, who were um, uh, immunocompromised or, or had weakened immuno, uh, uh, 
immunity or, or um, you know, I was worried about passing it on to them unknowingly. And so that was constantly on my mind. I was running around in my, whenever I'd visit family, you know, trying to get them to wash their hands or spraying them with antibacterial whatever and, and putting whatever type of alternative medicine that was known to ward off uh, viruses in addition to antibacterial lotion and everything else and mask wearing. I mean, I was doing whatever I could um, until I gave up because nobody was listening to me. But the attempt was to just try to keep people protected because my concern was, was really for them and others that I didn't want to pass that on. Trauma is something that is really, it's, again, it's something that we are learning to understand more and more, and, and we are thankful for, for the psychologists who really help us to understand it. In the book, The Body Keeps the Score, which for anybody who has gone through trauma or experiencing trauma, I, I recommend it. It can be hard to handle, and I strongly recommend seeing a trauma therapist and, and having, having them help you work through this because the triggers that can come up with even reading some of this um, can, be, can be difficult, but if you, if you are at all interested, I, I recommend reading it. In chapter four of his book, he talks about, in fact, he uses the, um, he, the title is Running for Your Life, The Anatomy of Survival, and that's kind of it's kind of what I think of when I think of this survival instinct that we are just running for our lives. It's a, it's a basic instinct. They, you know, we refer to it as the fight, flight, or freeze. There's a fourth one somewhere in there that I, I don't remember off the top of my head. But when we are in danger or we are in a perceived danger or perceived threat, we are, 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 trauma response system kicks in whatever it's called and we our our parts of our brain kind of shut off in order for us to just respond in this this fight flight or freeze that pushes us into action and he describes um he talks about shares the story of one you one uh young boy who was uh, on 9-11 just about uh, 1,500 feet away from the World Trade Centers, just watching the planes. This little boy is watching the planes go into the World Trade Center and, the, and then the buildings falling. And the author of this book describes that he was friends with this family and he was surprised by how quickly this boy was able to adapt, that even within a few days, this boy was not in a state of triggered, uh, not in a triggered state of trauma, but he w had been able to process through it quickly. And, and even his response was to figure out, you know, ways that, you know, next time he could have helped people. And the author reflects upon the fact that, that this boy had been able to get out quickly. He wasn't stuck in this school. He was able to get out quickly. He uh, came from a, a loving family that was supportive, that was healthy and they were able to help him feel safe and process through what he had just seen. And so the trauma that he experienced wasn't going to be something that was going to linger for him. And so he says this on page 50, 52 about the young boy named Noam. He said, but Noam's experience allows us to see in outline two critical aspects of the adaptive response to threat that is basic 
to human survival. At the time the disaster occurred, he was able to take an active role by running away from it, thus becoming an agent in his own rescue. And that's something that, um, that I've talked about a lot, this idea of agency. And I've begun to understand over the last few years how important it is for us to have our own agency, our own ability to act, to decide to act, and the freedom to do that, that that is really critical. And it's the way God created us to be. Back to the book, um, the author Kolk, I think is his last name, or, or Vander Kolk, he says, and once he had reached the safety of home, the alarm bells in his brain and body quieted. This freed his mind to make sense of what had happened and even to imagine a creative alternative to what he had seen. In contrast to Noam, traumatized people become stuck, stopped in their growth because they can't integrate new experiences into their lives. He says, after trauma, the world is experienced with a different nervous system. The survivor's energy now becomes focused on suppressing inner chaos at the expense of spontaneous involvement in their life. These attempts to maintain control over unbearable physiological reactions. Our body is reacting physiologically to what is taking place around us. Our, our adrenaline is kicking in. Our, um, our, it's pulsating through our body. We, um, I've seen this even for myself that in traumatic experiences, you know, this is about the only time when I'm not hungry, um, or wanting to eat, but my stomach shuts down. I don't, I don't, I'm not hungry because in those moments it's survival. I don't need to eat. I just need to go and, and, uh, or, or fight or, or freeze because there's trauma because there's, a uh, there's danger. And back to the book. Vanderkolk says these attempts to maintain control over unbearable physiological reactions can result in a whole range of physical symptoms, including fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, and other autoimmune diseases. This explains why it is critical for trauma treatment to engage the entire organism, body, mind, and brain. On page 54, he says this, When the brain's alarm system is turned on, it automatically triggers pre-programmed physical escape plans in the oldest parts of the brain. As in other animals, the nerves and chemicals that make up our basic brain structure have a direct connection with our body. When the old brain takes over, it partially shuts down the higher brain or conscious mind and propels the body to run, hide, fight, or on occasion freeze. By the time we are fully aware of our situation, our body may already be on the move. If the fight, flight, freeze response is successful and we escape the danger, we recover our internal equilibrium and gradually regain our senses. If for some reason the normal response is blocked, for example, when people are held down, trapped, or otherwise prevented from taking effective action, be it in a war zone, a car accident, domestic violence, or a rape. The brain keeps secreting stress chemicals and the brain's electrical circuits continue to fire in vain. Long after the actual event has passed, the brain may keep sending signals to the body to escape a threat that no longer exists." End quote. 
I think that's a, it's such an important and powerful way to describe the trauma experience. And again, we are so thankful to, to psychologists and ther trauma therapists like, like Vander Kolk, who help us to understand what is taking place in our system. And in previous episodes, um, in my interview with Dawn and Lisa Spencer and their harrowing experience in the uh, Paradise Fire several years ago, that was what, you know, Lisa really described it well, her own experience, that, that trauma experience and, and being able to escape. And they were, they were able to escape, but then their lives were upended by having to survive they had to find a new home. They had to find a rental. And then after that, they had, I mean, everything was destroyed. They, they escaped the fire, but they lost their home. They had to buy every, you know, completely new things. And, and through, um, through therapy and obviously her own faith, she was able to walk through that and journey through that. And, and, um, but there was a, a, that movement of survival that kicked in um, they had to stay in a survival state for a little while because they did have to survive. Everything that they had was, almost everything they had was gone. That survival state that happens to us can linger for a longer period of time if we are not able to immediately remove ourselves from danger or if the danger lasts for a longer period of time. So for example, during the wars, and I'm just so grateful that, that in my years in the United States, though we have been at war at times, I have not had to suffer through, and I think most people in America these days have not had to suffer through a protracted war that has significantly impacted all of us, like World War I or World War II or even the Vietnam War, because those are awful. World War II in Europe lasted six years. In the United States, it was only about three or four years. But in war Europe, the constant bombing, the bombing of England, the bombing of Germany, uh, the bombing, uh, I think it hit parts of Russia, the constant bombing, and especially of civilians. Those civilians, they may have escaped danger. Let's say a bomb hits their city, and, or a bombing raid happens, and they're in shelter and they survive. They've survived that bombing raid, but there's gonna be another one because the war is still going on. And the sirens that they hear the next day or in two weeks or three weeks triggers their survival instinct and they run and hide again. But if they're living in that protracted war that is, that is ongoing and there is no escape and they are constantly having to run and hide. The Holocaust victims in those Nazi concentration camps, their survival, they were in a heightened state of survival from day one. And if they survived, and we do know there are stories of some Holocaust survivors who the way they survived was to shut all of that off to completely shut down that past life, that part of their life, and, and as if that had never happened, start over. That was their defense mechanism, coping skill kicking in because what they had experienced was so horrible 
that they couldn't process it. And if they had processed it, they would be reliving over and over and over again. That's the PTSD part. Living over and over again, even though after they were released, they were safe. Their body, their mind did not understand that they were safe because it was still reliving the trauma. That is the effect of PTSD. And as trauma therapists will tell you, the only way to move out of that is to, is to process through it and to heal. And there are so many different ways to do that. And, and again, trauma therapists can help with that. And this book and other books can help with that. Um, but that is the lingering effect. And so when we are in, when we are not able to escape the danger, whether it's psychological or physical, and we are in that danger for a long period of time, our survival instincts may take over and we stay stuck in a state of survival. And I think I'm wondering, well, I know I'm wondering, but I'm, I'm wondering if what we are experiencing today, especially in the United States where I am, but, but I think other parts of the world, but, but here in the United States is the lingering state of survival. We suffered through a collective trauma on varying degrees and levels, some of us more than others. And I wonder if some of us, maybe the majority of us, without even realizing it, are still in a heightened state of survival, that we are not actually really living and moved through the trauma, but we are still in survival mode. COVID has, has been reduced and though it's still affecting people and I'm sure people are still dying from it, there is still the, the lingering effects. Talk about the vaccine or about um, COVID in general or about mask wearing, all of that brings up heated political debates. And for some people, it may even be a trigger. Oh my gosh, I have to wear a mask again? And maybe taking them back to when you couldn't go anywhere without a mask. You had to wear a mask in school. You had to wear a mask on planes. Um, you, and, it, and it may be bringing them back into the height of that trauma. The vaccines or vaccine requirements. I, um, I re remember during the, the during COVID, um, I went to a concert with one of my sisters and um, when we booked the tickets, we, it, it said that you had to be vaccinated in order to attend the concert. It wasn't a problem for me or my sister. We, we had chosen to get the vaccine. Um, but it, it's, and then you had to wear a mask. Um, and so I just, I remember thinking, wow, this, you know, this would impact those who didn't want to wear a mask or didn't want to get the vaccine. They would not have been able to see that concert. Um, and so talk about the vaccines and, and even the memory of that, of that concert that I went to kind of brings me back to that time and the memory of that and, you know, the stress of, of all of that 
period. Hospitals today are still struggling. Right now, um, in this recording, there I believe there are still uh, workers from Kaiser Healthcare that are on strike. I think it's like 60 or 70,000 Kaiser workers on strike. And no doubt it is, it is the, inf or the, the cause and effect of COVID and, and the impact you know, that health workers and nurses and doctors were um, under-resourced prior to COVID. And then you add COVID and it's a medical nightmare. I read an article the other day that, that said um, it'll take about 20 years for, for schools and school counselors to get back up to speed that there's such a need, a demand for school counselors and the mental health of students in schools is significantly struggling. And it would take about 20 years to really regain what we've lost there. And that's, you know, not to mention just the basic mental health of, of people in general, of students of schools, the prediction of the impact of education on on especially K through 12 students who were impacted during the pandemic and w the, the idea that what they've lost we, we might never regain, that they were not able to adapt or teachers were not able to adapt as well. And, it, and so essentially those years are lost to students. Those effects can keep us, I think, or I wonder if they could keep us in a state of survival. Jobs have been affected. More people want to work remotely, and mo most companies don't want them to work remotely for a variety of reasons, and that's becoming an issue. Um, the landscape of, you know, then businesses and re retail, retail space and, and homes and mortgages and inflation and the economy we're, we're living out the known effects of COVID, but I wonder if we're unaware that we may still be in a heightened state of survival. And so what does that mean if we are? Well, not only is it having an effect on us physiologically speaking, that adrenaline and stressors and heightened state of whatever it might be, a, a triggered response, uh, anger, depression, sadness, again, PTSD, whatever else might be there. But our lives then, our, our spiritual growth and our spiritual formation may be challenged because we are stuck there. I, I remember talking to a therapist um, recently within the last few months and and I kind of made a, made a comment about, you know, how stressed I was and overwhelmed I was. And, and uh, the comment was, I know you're in, a, you're in a place where you can't quite yet heal or begin to heal or move past the trauma because you're still in the trauma you're, or you're still in the, in the dangerous situation. And, and that's all that was said, but the implication was you can't really move past this or heal or grow until you're out of the danger. And then even when you're out of the danger, your survival skills are probably still employed in your body and you're, it's gonna take a while for that to really begin to release 
and let go so that you can actually heal and grow. When we are in a survival state, speaking personally, and I'm beginning to understand that when we are in a state of survival, we really can't see beyond the, what we are currently experiencing. We can't, uh, our, our creativity, our ability to um, problem solve is affected, our ability to, um, we, we think about immediate problems, maybe not long-term problems. Again, all of the responses in our body are, are having an effect. Um, and we're not able to, with clarity, understand even what, what is currently going on because our brains are so caught. We are such in a limited space that our brains can't fully function and really move us toward healing and growth. This reminds me in the Old Testament of Jeremiah chapter 29. It's a chapter that has really been, been, been special and important to me even as far back as you know, you know, 10 years ago when I began to understand really what was going on in this chapter and the audacity of what God is telling these people to do. These people in Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah is the prophet in Israel who's in Jerusalem after the fall of Jerusalem. This is after 587 or 586 um, BC or BCE, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, BC is before Christ. BCE is before common era. So it means the same thing. Um, the fall of Jerusalem happens. Babylon, God kind of takes his protection off of Israel Babylon comes in and destroys the temple, destroys the city of Jerusalem, and takes captive the southern kingdom, which was the uh, tribe of Judah, the tribe of Levi, and I believe Benjamin is in there, and they are taken to Babylon, which is on the whole other side of the desert, the Arabian, uh, well, not the Arabian desert, but in that Middle East area. So they, they, their worship because of the temple has been destroyed. They don't know how to worship God anymore or how to follow God. They have to develop a whole new way of being. Their city is destroyed. Their family members and friends are destroyed. And if they were kept alive and taken captive, they're now in a whole other country and they have no, what they see, they're limited in their understanding because they believe they have no access to God. Israel's religion at that time was very focused on the temple and worship at the temple and sacrifices, and festivals, and feasts. All of that, most of that, took place at the temple. So when they are taken to Babylon, they don't know what to do. And there are psalms that talk about, um, that talk about them sitting by the rivers, or by the Kabar River, which is Babylon, sit on, sitting by the Kabar River in Babylon and just weeping. They're in tr they're, they've experienced trauma significant trauma as any victims of war and, and captivity can tell you. Again, we in America, if you look at World War II or even Vietnam, those were wars that were fought over there, quote. They were, they were fought on other, in other countries. We, we did not experience the same type of trauma that Britain, German, uh, French, others, Vietnamese, experienced. So these Israelites in Babylon, they don't know what to do. 
and they're, they're, Ezekiel, the prophet, is there with them. That's what the whole book of Ezekiel is about. He's there with them in Babylon. He's trying to guide them. Jeremiah had to stay in Jerusalem. And he's, he's trying to give them a message of hope. But the message of hope that he gives them is not one that they wanted to hear. And so in Jeremiah 29, it, it starts out, and this is a letter that is going to the exiles in Jerusalem, and he starts out talking to them by saying, um, all right, guys, my paraphrase, um, it's time to go build some houses. It's time to um, start making money. It's time to start allowing your kids to get married and go through the whole courtship process and start having babies and start rebuilding. That you're going to be here a while. In fact, he tells them that they're going to be there 70 years. That is not what they wanted to hear. They wanted to go back, of course. They wanted to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. They didn't want to build there. Why do we build here? This is not where we're supposed to be. God, you've forsaken us. Now deliver us back to our homeland. And Jeremiah says, that's not God's plan for you. You've got to rebuild here. And for the next 70 years, you're going to be here. And some of you are not going to make it. Some of you will make it back, and you will see Jerusalem again. But for the majority of you, your time is here. So build houses, settle down, build families, make some money, and seek the peace of the city. Meaning, seek to bring peace and restoration and hope to this city, to this place here in Babylon. Seek to bring it, it prosperity and peace and spiritual vitality. And then Jeremiah says the famous verse that all of us are familiar with, but we may not know the context about. Then Jeremiah says, uh, and he's quoting, obviously, this is, this is God's words, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and I will answer you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. The hope that Jeremiah was giving them was not, was not what they wanted to hear, but it was all of that there was for their good. And God was assuring them, affirming them, don't worry, guys. I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper you and not to harm you, the plans to give you hope in a future. Right now, in the midst of your trauma and survival, all you can see is death, destruction, and the loss of your lives and family and, and hope. But don't worry. 
I'm still here. And you can find a life here. And that's what he told them to do. God was telling them to find a life there. And he was encouraging them to move past survival. He was encouraging them rather than staying in a fighting stance. He didn't tell them to go and you know, try to overthrow Babylon. And it's interesting when we fast forward 600 years to the time of Jesus, Jesus also wasn't encouraging them to go and overthrow Rome. And unfortunately, after he died and was resurrected in the church, the early Christian church had moved out and beyond Jerusalem in the year 70 AD or CE, the Jews who remained in Jerusalem and had not followed Christ, they tried to overthrow Rome and they were once again destroyed and crushed and it was terrible and the temple was finally destroyed and it's never been rebuilt. They, they couldn't understand the message of Jesus. They couldn't understand that he was bringing them hope in a different way, that they had been surviving for the last, in that time, in Jesus' day, for the last couple hundred years because they had been from one, gone from one oppressor to the other. And they had tried to revolt many, many times because they thought that that's what they were supposed to do. And I, I wonder, you know, the, those 600 years prior to Jesus and even then up through that year 70 AD, if they had been in a collective trauma six, seven hundred years of, of just trauma and survival and not really understanding God's message of hope and redemption that, that was beyond this life and that was beyond merely coming back to their homeland. That's all the Jewish people wanted was to be able to come back to their homeland, rebuild the temple, serve God, and be in the place that God had promised them. For them, that was what it meant to thrive. That was what it meant for the Israelites to be able to serve God. And God was changing their paradigm. He said, no, you don't have to be in Israel to serve me. And no, you don't need the temple. You never really did to serve me. And no, you don't need the sacrifices to serve me. In fact, the sacrifices were for your benefit, not mine. What I need from you is to love me with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What I need from you is to live. And back to Jeremiah 29, thrive here. Show, and he doesn't say this you know, in that chapter, but there's the implication, show Babylon, who you are and, and the God that you serve by thriving and, and going beyond just surviving and living here. Let go of the past and step into this future that may not look like the one you think or you wanted, but is a future with hope and promise nonetheless. And it's a simplistic thought, but that really is the essence of healing from and moving from, moving through trauma. It is letting go of the past. Now, 
I really want to qualify that because it's not that simple. And so anybody who tries to tell you just forget about it or let go or move on, they're wrong. And, and when they try to use scriptures to, to do that, no. At, at, that's not the way God created our bodies to function. Now, sometimes we can miraculously in a moment or through maybe one single therapy session, it's boom. We are able to just process through it and let go. But more often than not, it's going to take time. But that is the result is to let go and let go of the grip that it has on you and step into a new future of not surviving but of truly thriving god desired that for the israelites in babylon 2600 years ago he desired that with jesus in jerusalem and in all parts of Israel 2,000 years ago. And he desires that for us still today. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. As we are trying to look past COVID, I think what I want to encourage us to do and to think about is how, how might we still be stuck in those survival instincts or mechanisms? And how can we begin to let those survival techniques go and step into a new reality, a new future, the one that God has for us. How can we begin to love him and love others? How can we begin to grow or continue to grow in spiritual formation? Where can we embrace the life God has for us, regardless of our age or our physical condition? Where can we grow? Where can we heal? Where can we move forward? Where is, is trauma and survival still holding us back? And what would that look like for us to move forward? I believe that, a, that the crucial, and probably this is, the essence of moving forward. It is understanding how to love God better and how to love others better. And in that, we heal and we grow to become more like Christ and we take care of ourselves. When we truly are loving God and loving others, spiritual formation and health and growth is taking place. And so the whole idea of self-care is actually rooted in spiritual formation, in my opinion. Because when we, are, when we are growing in our love for God, God is transforming and healing us. 
And that is a form of self-care because he is directing us, guiding us, restoring the parts of us that are broken. We are learning how to be sensitive to him and the, the, a, his voice in all areas of our life. And we are being transformed and healed. And when we are learning to love others, we are learning how to be how to give grace to ourselves and others because others become a mirror to us of our own issues and challenges. And that, the essence of spiritual formation is that. We grow, we heal, and we take care of ourselves as we love God and as we love others. What might that look like? in your life today and moving forward. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Thanks for listening to this episode, episode 60 of the Nefesh podcast. Please take care of yourself. Continue to grow in your love for God and your love for others. And we'll talk to you next time.